1: Bad Dad, Rad Dad, where we look for better dads one movie at a time. I'm Kylie. And I'm Elliot. And we're going to talk about all the Christmas movies we watched this week before crowning the baddest Christmas dad and the raddest Christmas dad of them all. And as always, dad is an energy, not a gender.
2: Yeah, you know, post-holiday blues be damned. We, uh, we know that feeling that everybody gets. You know, there's all this buildup towards Christmas throughout December. And then as soon as Christmas Day happens... Which, as of this recording, was yesterday. And you start moving into that post-holiday slump. But, you know what? We're here to keep the party rolling. We're only talking about Christmas movies this week.
1: Because that's all we watched last week. (laughs) Yeah, we
2: were gearing up towards Christmas. And what better to do than watch all of our favorite holiday movies? So we're covering a lot of favorites today. Uh, Yeah, so no rest for these stinkies. Um, And, like, you know... I got to pat us on the back a little bit because, you know, so many shows take a break or go on hiatus over, over the holidays. Not us. We re- were releasing two regularly scheduled shows, but we also released an episode on Christmas Day. Yeah. No rest for these stinkies.
1: You've said that twice.
2: Because it's great. <laughs>
1: <laughs> but speaking of that, if you didn't catch that we released a our second ever Daddy Deep Dive, so that's a spoiler episode um, on Christmas Day, it was on Gremlins, and we had Jeremy Saunders back for the third time um, to talk about that and a short film that he introduced us to. That's one of his favorites, uh, called Tree Venge. Uh, please go and take uh, listen to that. And if you haven't seen Gremlins, go watch that because it's so good. Yeah, and then listen to our spoiler episode.
2: Yeah, you'll love it. It's a blast.
1: It is a blast.
2: All that said, okay, let's get into it. Okay, so for the first Christmas film that we watched, we went out to our favorite place in the world, Metro Cinema, who are curating some excellent top-tier Christmas content, and we saw a favorite from 1990, Home Alone. It was directed by Chris Columbus and written by John Hughes. It stars Macaulay Culkin as Kevin McAllister, Joe Pepsi as Harry... Joe Pesci, (laughs) Daniel Stern as Marv, John Hurd as Peter McAllister, and the legendary Catherine O'Hara as Kate McAllister. Synopsis, the tagline for this, a family comedy without the family. (laughs) Uh, An eight-year-old troublemaker must protect his house from a pair of burglars when he accidentally, when he's accidentally left home alone by his family during Christmas vacation. Hell yeah. What do you think of Home Alone?
1: I... I love Home Alone so much. It's one of those movies that I watched all the time with my family as a kid. And I continue to watch it all the time with you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, it's just, it's it's never going to stop making me happy.
2: Yeah. Yeah, it is certainly a staple. And I, we had never seen this in a theater before, right?
1: No, not that I can recall. So this
2: was really exciting that Metro had it. And... I echo everything you said. I love this. I've loved it forever. It came out the year we were born.
1: Yeah, it was Destiny Baby.
2: Yeah, and I, yeah, I watched it nonstop as a kid. I mean, Christmas be damned. I was watching this year round. I I didn't even regard this as a as a Christmas movie until you and I started watching it together.
1: Yeah, because for my family, it was a Christmas movie. Although our um, second youngest, nibbling, is just about four. I think we'll be watching Home Alone year-round. Yeah. She's obsessed.
2: Yeah, she got introduced to it like last month and has been watching it on repeat. And that that was me. That was the way I was living.
1: I don't think it's going to stop. So that's the cool thing about Home Alone, right? It just stands the test of time. Like we loved it. I think our parents loved it, hence why they would allow us to watch it on repeat. And now this next generation coming up loves it too.
2: (laughs) And I'm so glad that we both love it independently of each other and that it's become a staple christmas movie that we watch every year and it usually typically it's kind of been the the movie we watch on christmas day it was or just christmas eve yeah yeah like it's it's really in the the last few days we 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 watched it as early as we did this year just because it was playing at metro mm-hmm. but uh i i love it and it's like not only is it one of the best christmas movies ever in my opinion, but it's also one of the funniest movies ever. I still think it's hilarious.
1: So that was the thing that I really noticed seeing it in the theater because this is a movie like we've said that you and I watched endlessly when we were kids and with our family. But I've never really watched it with anyone other than you or my family, mm. and so watching it in an audience um, with I'm sure some kids who had never seen it before. Maybe there was an adult or two who had never seen it before, but it was fairly busy. I noticed just how much the laughs kick in once the revenge starts.
3: Right, yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: Or once the protection of the house starts. Mm -hmm. like, And and we get a little bit more slapsticky and, you know, Marvin.
2: Where the movie basically turns into a cartoon.
1: (laughs) Yeah, where Marvin and Harry start getting hurt. Like, big belly laughter from the audience. And I was like, yeah, this movie is so funny. But it takes a little while to get, um, I think, to the... Humor that almost anyone would enjoy, mm. but I find the first part of the film funny too.
2: Yeah, like there's just a lot of humor in even the subtleties. Uh, I mean, it's there's so many good bits throughout the movie that are hilarious, and and so so many quotable bits. Like there's stuff that you and I quote to each other year round. Oh yeah, from this film and. I I I hear you like I know some people might think the front bit is slower than the back but I personally think it's paced really well. <laughs> I, I
1: <laughs> You just think this is a perfect movie.
2: Yeah. And I feel like it just nails kid logic through the character of Kevin of just things that that work or shouldn't work or things that are scary or that as an adult you know aren't scary but it it's just John Hughes somehow how tapped into what what is important when you're a kid and what can really just get at can really get to you personally or stick with you and it may not make sense to an adult but somehow he just like captured lightning in a bottle and then through chris columbus's direction and then macaulay calkins <laughs> um, portrayal of kevin just absolutely crushes what it means to be a kid and how it feels to be a kid
1: well, what I always come back to is the cheese pizza and the macaroni and cheese. Yeah. And like the ice cream sundays and the like. When I was a kid, I wanted to eat everything Kevin was eating. hmm I still want to. Yeah. I want some Little Nero's pizza, although I think it's based on Little Caesars pizza. That pizza's just okay.
2: Yeah. Um, it also has some classic fourth wall breaks. You love that stuff.
1: I love fourth wall breaks. What's interesting to me, though, and you know this because we've talked about it a lot, is there's a couple of things that happen in this film that I understood differently and incorrectly as a child. And I still can't see them as anything other than what I thought happened as a kid. So like, I always thought Buzz puked at the beginning
3: mm-hmm.
1: and it wasn't spilt milk. And I always thought that Kevin was screaming at the tarantula being in the bathroom.
2: And it wasn't the aftershave. And it wasn't
1: the aftershave. Because as a child, I didn't understand what aftershave was. And I know logically now that it's milk that spilled over and that it's aftershave, but my brain still kicks back to like what I thought when I was a kid.
2: Mm-hmm. No, it's very much the Edward Scissorhands drinking lemonade and it's so sour. <laughs> You're like, why is it so sour? <laughs> yeah, no, it's, and it just, it's funny that as we got, as I've gotten older with this film, I remember being an adult when it was revealed. I feel like it was probably in like a Buzzfeed article. That Kevin's passport got thrown out when all the milk got spilt on it and it got thrown out into the garbage and there's a lingering shot of the passport being thrown out or the, the, the plane ticket and seeing that and thinking that was a revelation.
1: Well, it's really interesting. So when I was reading like up on the film, I guess John Hughes was really worried that mothers in particular wouldn't buy that a family would forget one of their kids. Like that would just be too much to suspend their disbelief. And so Chris Columbus is quoted as saying, John filled in every possible logic so the audience would always buy it.
2: Oh yeah, the whole opening of the film and all the setup to Kevin being left home alone was like meticulously and perfectly executed. Like I, I, it's airtight.
1: (laughs) You want to hear something that'll make you smile? Yeah. In 2014, Macaulay Culkin said that he still calls Catherine O'Hara mom when they talk.
2: I've heard this. Isn't that so
1: sweet? So good. Catherine O'Hara, as I've grown up and and like post Shits Creek, I've realized that she has been a staple and a part of so many of the things that I loved as a kid. So Home Alone, Beetlejuice, Nightmare Before Christmas, and I didn't even know it. Mm-hmm. Like I just didn't, I took, I took her for granted. Mm-hmm. And now I'm like, damn, she's so good. And then seeing her in the like, sctv movies, Christopher Guest stuff. yeah, the Christopher Guest stuff is so so good, and so it's so cool now to see the John Candy and Catherine O'Hara scenes and understand that like sctv connection, and just like it's just so sweet.
2: Yeah, no, it's it's so lovely, and like she, she she brings so much emotional heft to the to the film, and I just she brings and she brings so much mom energy. Yeah. And it's it's so good. And and like yeah, she's just so legendary in this. And then the thing that I that has just gotten under my skin more and more by contrast is Kevin's dad, Peter.
1: Oh, he's a total dolt.
2: He's just a freaking clueless chump through the whole the whole movie.
1: Well, Buzz has to get it from somewhere.
2: Yeah, that's a good point. Because yeah, I I mean, when you have I mean, thank God you have a mom as awesome as Catherine, I don't fault her for leaving Kevin behind. I, like, I don't think that's her fault.
1: I also don't fault her for putting him up in the attic.
2: But if we're gonna blame anybody, I blame the dad. Why? He didn't even close the garage door. <laughs> Friggin' loser. I
1: mean, I think we are getting into spoiler territory <laughs> if someone's never seen him alone.
2: <laughs> <laughs> so sorry. It's yeah. I think that this has stood the test, continues to stand the test of time. And I think we'll be watching this forever.
1: I think that one of the things that doesn't surprise me that we love it so much is that while this isn't like we talked about with Gremlins, quite obviously entry level horror, there's an element of some of the things we like in horror movies in the back half of the film. So in that like I am going to like take revenge or I'm going to defend my space or you know there's people who are trying to get into this place that is mine. And I think as a kid, that would be like, that was to me genuinely scary. Mm -hmm. Like robbers invading your home and like wanting to hurt you knowing that you're there. Um, And then that catharsis of getting them back. Mm -hmm. And if that isn't what most horror movies is, Mm -hmm. are, I don't know. So that, that doesn't surprise me. But the other thing is, I think that it's the secondary story with the neighbor that gives this some like really emotional staying power yeah beyond just like oh it's a fun movie of like a kid defending his home like there's some real heart to it um and I think that that is best seen through these like very small scenes with the neighbor
2: yeah I mean just where everything nets up by the end of the film depending on the conditions of which we watch it like I can get real emotional when we get to the end of the film. Uh, I mean, between, uh, between what happens with our characters and then what John Williams is bringing to the table with the, with the score of this movie.
1: Did you know that um, originally it was going to be composed by somebody else and they backed out for some reason. And so like everybody involved in the film were like, ha we should see if John Williams will do it. But they're like, we'll never get him. Like he's too big of a deal. And then they showed him a cut of the film, and he was so, quote, enchanted with the film that he agreed to take it on.
2: That's incredible.
1: It is an enchanting film. That's a great word for it. There's just Mm -hmm. something so magical about it. And there's so much that's relatable, honestly, to this day Mm -hmm. about like wanting your family to disappear and then being like, oh shit, I don't actually want them to disappear. Mm -hmm. Um, That desire to both like have the space to do whatever you want. Like, what little kid didn't fantasize about like getting to eat whatever you wanted whenever you wanted and like jump on the bed and do all of these things but then like the offset to that is the reality of what happens when all of that goes away Mm -hmm. well then you're just a freaking adult having to buy your toothbrushes and you know use your coupons at the grocery store and yeah so on and so forth
3: yeah
2: sometimes you just want to be looked after and eat cheese pizza and macaroni
1: And watch movies that you're not supposed to watch. Yeah. Did you notice, because I really noticed this this time around, like the red and green in the house, like that the house is painted red and green inside the walls.
2: I didn't notice.
1: So I really noticed that seeing it on the big screen. And I guess that was intentional that they like sprinkled red and green throughout the entire movie to like keep the Christmas vibes (laughs) going. Um, Also, do you know what the snow is made of at the end of the film? Mm mashed potato flakes Really? <laughs> mashed potato flakes. Wow.
2: Yeah, this movie it, it it hits the nail on the head in terms of Christmas vibe. Like this movie just feels like Christmas.
1: But does it feel that way because we saw it when we were kids? Or do you think it just is Christmas vibes?
2: I don't know, it just like it fe- the whole the whole movie just feels like Christmas time and the feeling of Christmas time you have when you're a kid specifically. I feel like as an adult, that's the feeling we're constantly kind of chasing.
1: The it, Christmas feeling?
2: The Christmas feeling. And let me tell you, if you've never watched this film with subtitles, keep the subtitles on and let the credits roll. Because there is, there are some vocals to one of the John Williams pieces. And the lyrics are something you would never expect.
1: Yeah, they are pretty wild.
2: We discovered this last year or something.
1: And now we sing them fairly often to each other.
2: Yeah, so we worth, worth checking it out.
1: I have to tell you three good pieces of trivia. I know I'm very trivia heavy right now, but I need to tell you them. Go for it. So one came from Cora, one of our number one listeners. Buzz's girlfriend, the photo of her, is actually one of the art director's sons dressed up as a girl because Chris Columbus thought it would be too cruel to use a girl's <laughs> picture. Yeah. Did you know that already? Yeah, I did. So it's this is a good good thing to do. Mm-hmm. Um, also, did you know that originally Chris Columbus was supposed to make Christmas Vacation, but when he met Chevy Chase, he realized he wouldn't get along with him and no longer wanted to do the film.
2: <laughs> oh man, that's awesome. <laughs>
1: Makes sense.
2: Yeah, Christmas Vacation, and I'm, I'm I've never really seen it. I've only seen a little bit of it.
1: I don't think I've ever seen it. I don't
2: think it'd be our vibe.
1: No, I've when I saw the trailer, Metro played it as well. I was like, yeah.
2: And also, yeah, Chevy Chase is pee-pee-poo-poo.
1: Also, okay, two more. John Hughes was really strict about having the dialogue in the film read as it was supposed to be, and the only character he allowed to improvise was John Candy. (laughs) And then lastly, this is perfect for you because this is your vibe. When Macaulay Culkin would get tired between takes, he would just lie down on the ground and sleep.
2: Hell yeah. (laughs) That's my guy. That's Um, great.
1: But one of the last things I have to say is last year... Um, Before Christmas, we bought the Home Alone Lego.
2: It's one of the coolest things we've ever bought.
1: And they had it like an advent calendar style, so they were in 24 different bags, maybe 25, and you would build a little bit at a time and and attach it together. This was the first time I think we've watched Home Alone since we built that Lego, and I was just marveling at how great the Lego was as we were watching the movie. I was like, Oh man, like they got that detail in the Lego.
2: Yeah, that was the biggest and coolest thing about building that Lego is just like the 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 nods to the to the big home alone fans and like all of the uh, the little subtle things that they threw in there. Uh that would just make you smile. I had a little bit of that too. I'm just like, "Oh man. That like that's the smallest thing and they chose to include that. So cool."
1: Yeah, that Lego set is boss.
2: Yeah. Again, one of the coolest things we've ever bought. Yeah, this is this is like I said, not only one of my favorite Christmas movies, this is probably one of my favorite movies of all time. It's, it's so good. It's so great. How uh, how does it make you feel?
1: It just makes me feel so unbelievably happy and comforted.
2: Yeah, uh, yeah, same. Just endlessly happy, and it never ceases to put me in the in the holiday spirit.
1: It, it's a warm movie. It just makes me feel really, really warm. Where do you feel it? In my heart.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, same. Okay. Next one. Let's do it.
1: So we watched the 1974 movie Black Christmas. It is a horror mystery thriller. It was directed by Bob Clark, and I can't wait to talk a little bit more about that later. Mm. And written by Roy Moore. It stars Olivia Hussey as Jess, Keir Dilla as Peter, Margot Kidder as Barb, And the synopsis is, during their Christmas break, a group of sorority girls are stalked by a stranger. If that doesn't get you in the Christmas spirit, (laughs) I don't know what will. I believe you hadn't seen this until I showed it to you. That's right. And now you love it. I love it. What do you think of Black Christmas, 1974?
2: Yeah, love this movie. Yeah, you showed it to me pretty early on in our relationship. I think we had just moved out on our own and you showed it to me. And it's something incredible about this movie is that it's it's kind of iconic for being one of the first to start a horror movie trope that was present in so many popular horror movies after this. But the fact that it exists in this, a horror Christmas movie of anything, is incredible. And it's done so well, so effectively in this. So like these sorority girls are being stalked in that the... the the stalker is calling them, and the calls are some of the most disturbing things I've ever heard in my life.
1: Yeah. So, I really got on my horror movie, horror movies as legitimate horror movies and not just kind of my I like darker things when I was in grade seven. Like, that's when I really started watching horror films proper. Mm-hmm. Um, and I had a friend that I watched a lot of them with, and we met in grade seven. So, we watched how, like John Carpenter's Halloween um, on Halloween in grade seven. And I remember that year, either that year or in grade eight, um, we tried to watch Black Christmas and I made it partway through the first phone call, which is like the first five minutes of the film and was so upset. We shut it off and didn't finish watching it. (laughs) And I didn't watch it again until I was a fair bit older. I was so disturbed (laughs) by it. And it's so interesting because this film really isn't gory and it doesn't really have graphic on-screen kills mm-hmm. there is on-screen death but it's not graphic or gratuitous yeah um but it's those phone calls that are just so skin-crawlingly upsetting
2: yeah that's the word it's just upsetting and from the phone calls themselves to yeah to the kills like it's just exactly it gets under your skin it makes you feel uncomfortable it it makes you feel out of control Mm -hmm. and there's this element of dramatic irony that's happening throughout the whole film that is putting you as a viewer on edge. And it just makes you frustrated that some of the characters on screen aren't more on edge. Um,
1: That's because we have that knowledge and they don't, that this person mm -hmm. is inside their space. Right. So it's really easy to dismiss a phone call like that is just like a prank call or like a harmless thing. Like it's upsetting, but it's harmless. But we know that this person is there and we know how dangerous he is.
2: Mm-hmm. Well, and it's so interesting watching this too, because this came out in mid seventies where I think, if, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think the seventies was kind of the start of um, like hitchhiking, becoming a big thing. And like, and and crank callings starting to become becoming a thing. And there's a lot of that kind there's a lot of those kinds of tropes that start kind of cropping up around the 70s, I feel like that's where you're kind of starting to get the the Texas chainsaws and the and the Halloweens and stuff like that.
1: According to Google, hitchhiking was really common in the 1930s and 1940s. And then there was a bit of a dip in the 1950s and a big resurgence in the 1960s and 70s.
2: So, a big part of the resurgence.
3: Yeah, this was, this was part of the
1: resurgence
2: <laughs> yeah. for sure. Gotcha, gotcha, gotcha. Um, something that I think helps kind of create that uh, unsettling factor in this is some of the camera techniques and filming techniques that are used. First of all, being that they use first-person perspective for the stalker mm-hmm. multiple times throughout the film. And uh I feel like I read somewhere once that like this was kind of one of the first films to do that.
1: It's not the first, but I but think like it's of, in the handful, yeah. Yeah.
2: Um and it's and it's done really really well and really effectively and they use sound design to like hear so you like you hear the breathing of the person and you're also embodying this person. It's it it's also upsetting. <laughs> it's so creepy. Um but then there's a lot of like lingering shots. Mm-hmm. Um like a lot of Long panning shots where we'll do almost a full 360 to take us from one spot to another. And it's real slow, or there's really slow, like push ins or zoom outs. And it all creates this tension and this mystery of like, you don't want the camera to stop moving because it's whatever, when it stops moving, it's going to reveal something. Mm-hmm. And you don't know if it's good, if it's bad, if it's going to be horrifying. It's done so, so well. It's so effective. And it stood out for me um, more this time watching it. And then the other thing is the characters. There's some awesome characterization in this.
1: Yeah, Jess is such an impressive character through like her just like fierce but casual independence and like control of her own body. And, you know, both Olivia Hussey, who played Jess, and Bob Clark said, like, oh, we weren't trying to have any, like, women's rights story. We were just, like, presenting people. But the very fact remains that, like, even to this day having a story where a woman is considering abortion or at least saying, I don't want to be pregnant, I'm not going to have this child just because you want me to, is, like, revolutionary even Mm -hmm. now. And so, you know, whether they were trying to make, like, a feminist film that's like got the specific women's rights subtext or not it's there yeah and that's so cool and like even aside from that like jess is just someone who so clearly knows what she wants and she's not gonna let the expectations of anyone whether it's a singular person or what like society generally would suggest she should do get in the way of what she wants
2: yeah that's so cool and it's also you know the comments about this being we're not trying to have a feminist agenda or anything. We're just trying to write people, which suggests that they have some pretty cool people in their lives. Exactly. Right. <laughs> well, and
1: also like, so Bob Clark specifically said he wanted to, as a rule, not objectify any of the women sexually hmm. or have any nude scenes. And that he very specifically wanted them all to come across as real people and not disposable horror characters that are just waiting to die. Mm-hmm. And I think, considering what slasher movies were like in the '70s, even John Carpenter's Halloween, mm-hmm. where you've got this intense dichotomy between like Laurie's friends and Laurie, yeah, and you, you're setting up that like virgin final girl. Mm-hmm. This film is not that. No, like this is subversive before there was even a trope to follow. Mm-hmm. And it's a shame that this wasn't the roadmap that then was followed in terms of characterization, right? Yeah. Because all of the women are, you know, complex. They're good and bad, and they're not one note. And and absolutely, they're not sexually objectified.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: Which is wild for a 1970s slasher film. Like, we're so used to seeing boobs yeah. in a 1970s slasher film.
2: And it seems like... If for a movie made in this time, set in a sorority house that is a horror movie, that it would be just kind of rife with that stuff. And the fact that, yeah, exactly, the fact that it's not and that it takes its time to respect its characters and give those characters very unique characterizations across the board and unique things to do throughout the film, and that, yeah, they're not just like killer bait mm-hmm. is awesome.
1: And it makes it so that we're more invested when the characters die. Yeah. Like, it's like, I'm not happy when the characters die. In so many horror films, I'm just, like, waiting for the kills, and I'm, like, excited for the kills. And these, I'm, I'm just, this is just a disturbing movie. Like, I don't mm-hmm. want any of this to happen. Yeah. And yet, I watch it every year. Mm-hmm.
2: <laughs> yeah. And it's, like, it's because it's that very creepy factor, you know, a la kind of, like, The Strangers. Like, there's no... When there's no kind of when when it's not just Jason Voorhees and he's just like this huge guy that's just there to wreck shop and kill everybody, but there's more mystery behind our our lead uh, antagonist, it makes it so much more interesting and stands the test of time. Hence, why we watch this every Christmas.
1: Mm-hmm. This is a funny funny thing. Uh, Margot Kidder, who played Barb, mm-hmm. said that she found Olivia Hussey, who played Just to be strange, because she just kept talking about Paul McCartney.
2: Your friend is so weird.
1: Cuz Olivia Hussey, I believe, is um British. She was uh Juliet in one of the in the Zeffirelli Romeo and Juliet. Okay. Which is probably if you watched Romeo and Juliet in school is likely the one you watched. Mm. Pre-Romeo plus Juliet.
2: <laughs> You're right. Um, that's so funny. Stop talking about Paul McCartney. <laughs> Enough. <laughs> that's that's awesome. I also love that like John Saxon, who's Lieutenant Fuller, is like Nancy's dad from yeah. Nightmare on Elm Street who, and he's also a cop in that.
1: <laughs> you know that Kira Delia who plays Peter is from 2001 a space odyssey. Yes.
2: Yeah. I'm like, this guy has just a striking look. So I looked it up after and I'm like, Oh yeah, of course.
1: And that's why Bob Clark cast him. Like he loved 2001 a space odyssey. Cause like, who are you if you don't, um, which is just so, yeah, it's so interesting.
2: Hate him in this though.
1: Yeah. He's, he sucks. Yeah.
2: Um, And I, I, this time watching it, I took particular joy in watching Mrs. Mac, who is just <laughs> an expert booze hider in this. Oh, yeah. Um, Bob Clark loves a good bit, as we'll talk about in another Bob Clark movie that we watched this week. But he loves a good, repeated, rep, rep, repetitious bit in his films. And he knows how to absolutely nail uh, the humor in them.
1: I would be remiss to not talk about how this has one of my favorite endings of anything ever. But I mean, particularly a horror film, like it's an absolutely chilling ending, but it is one of the best endings to anything I've ever seen. Yeah. And um, Warner Brothers wanted him to do something different. Mm. And he refused. Good. Bob Clark's the real MVP. Like what a guy.
2: Man, like to be a fly on the wall in the room for any any instance of those that we hear about where like a studio is just like, no way, you can't do that, man, forget about it. And the filmmaker's like, well, no.
1: But it's so interesting because I think there's times where the filmmaker does have the autonomy to do that and times where they don't, Mm -hmm. depending on whatever they initially... Did contractually, and I would imagine this was a pretty low-stakes project for Warner Brothers and probably didn't have a lot of funding, which meant that Bob Clark did have more creative control than, say, a Marvel film, right? Where mm. you might want to say, no way, and then you become Edgar Wright, who's no longer making Atman.
2: man Right. Yeah.
1: Because you hear it both ways, right? You hear directors who say, I don't, like, this is not my film. Like, my name's on it, but it's not what I wanted to make. Um. so I mean he, how lucky for us now today in 2022 just about 2023 that Bob Clark was able to have that creative control because I think there could have been another instance where he wanted the ending he wanted and Warner Brothers contractually was able to supersede him
2: yeah yeah I was just looking this up did you know this? this was filmed in Toronto yeah I did that's so cool
1: yeah Everything, Canada, baby. I mean, so many things are filmed in Canada because they get like a tax credit or whatever for it.
2: So, uh, it's filmed from March till May.
1: So, no real snow.
2: (laughs) No, well, if there's was probably very little. Yeah i I love this. Like, I mean, it's definitely the other side of the coin to Home Alone, but I love that we've we have this. We both love horror movies that we're able to infuse a little bit of horror into our Christmas movie lineup every year.
1: This one is much more horror than Christmas.
2: Yes. Uh,
1: <laughs> <laughs> like, what? Why? Took me a second. <laughs> you like, were staring at me with these eyes, like.
2: more. I thought when you said more horror than Christmas, I thought you meant just like Christmas in general, not Christmas movie. <laughs> <laughs> more horror than the holiday christmas
1: (laughs) oh gotcha um no i just meant like you know this is this is a horror movie set at christmas yeah yeah
2: yeah no totally
1: how does black christmas make you feel
2: creeped out makes my skin crawl still totally stunned by the ending no matter how many times i've seen it and I, i i get so excited to watch this every year i love it what about you
1: makes me really grateful for like the blueprint of Slasher films, and so surprised at its subversiveness even before it needed to be subversive, um, and then it just indelibly creeps me out.: Yeah. It's amazing.
2: How, how can it not?: Okay, so for the next film that we watched, very divisive, quote unquote, "holiday film." 1998, 1988, sorry, Die Hard, directed by John McTiernan, written by Roder- Roderick Thorpe, who wrote the novel apparently that this is based on. Uh, every year I see based on a novel and I always forget that this is based on a novel. I, I don't even know if the novel is called Die Hard or what it is. No, nope, I don't think it is. But curious. And then the screenplay was written by Jeb Stewart, Stephen E. D'Souza and Stephen E. D'Souza.
1: Don't forget, it's an action co- action thriller film. You didn't say that. <laughs> uh,
2: amongst um, Amidst also possibly being a holiday film. Um, It stars Bruce Willis as John McClane, Alan Rickman, the late and great Alan Rickman as Hans Gruber. One of the best names in Hollywood, Bonnie Bedelia as Holly Gennaro McClane. Uh, and uh, Reginald Vell Johnson as Sergeant Al Powell. Synopsis is, a New York City police officer tries to save his estranged wife and several others taken hostage by terrorists during a Christmas party at the Nakatomi Plaza in Los Angeles. All right. So what do you think of Die Hard?
1: So for many years, I didn't want to see Die Hard because it seemed like a dumb boy movie. Yes. And I will say it is kind of a dumb boy movie. Like, Like lots of boys love it and they're like, oh, Christmas. This is my favorite Christmas movie
2: because
1: mm-hmm. it's an action movie. Because
2: it's for guys. This is a
1: guy's Christmas movie.
0: <laughs> Having some <laughs> big guys Christmas.
1: I don't think that Jake Peralta did any favors for you <laughs> know getting rid of that appearance of Die Hard. But I will say, dismissing it as a dumb boy movie is reductive. Um, because for so long, I was just like, I don't want to see it. Also, like I don't love action movies, so it was like, I don't really care. My brother has really liked Die Hard forever, so I've seen bits and pieces of it because he would usually watch it by himself on Christmas or around Christmas. Mm. But I'd never seen it in its entirety until 2019 when we went and saw it at Metro Cinema. And I, I had never seen it before, but it was sold out.
2: Mm-hmm. Metro holds 500 people. So, so it was really busy. Huge crowd.
1: And it was so fun. Yeah, like I don't know if I would have liked it as much if I had seen it for the first time at home. I I, I can't know because I I didn't see it for the first time at home. Mm-hmm. But it was such a friggin' blast. I don't. Did we watch it last year just at home? I think we might have. I
2: think we might have too.
1: But now that we could go to the theater again, um, we went to Metro because they were playing it, and it wasn't sold out, but it was pretty darn full. Mm-hmm. And it was just as much of a blast as the first time we saw it yeah. in the theater. Just you know, the first time that I saw it. The first time that Al Powell's on screen and everyone starts cheering and I'm like, oh, he must be a good character. (laughs) You know, the first time that like the news reporter's on screen and everyone boos and it's just like, there was just this energy. Like people love this movie. Mm -hmm. And I find it really hard to not get swept up in the magic of seeing people love something.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, when they're just kind of sharing this passion for this thing. And they're all gathered in this singular space to share that passion about whatever it is.
1: Yeah, and there's just this, like, nice energy. Yeah. Like, it's just, we're all here to enjoy this film together. Um, And people, like, being excited to show people who have never seen it before. And so, you know, completely changed my mind on it. It's not my favorite movie I've ever seen. Mm -hmm. um, But I understand why it is so many people's favorites. And I really like it. Yeah. What's your history with it?
2: I've been watching this. It's another one of those movies that I've been watching probably since I was too young to be watching it.
1: <laughs> Classic Elliot.
2: Um, but yeah. I, and again, like not ex not Christmas exclusive. Like I would watch this year round. I I have a very vivid memory of me starting it before I went to school one day, and then finishing it when I got home. So that that meant I woke up before seven a.m. to start watching Die Hard, <laughs> and then watched it after three p.m. So
1: you've seen it a lot.
2: Oh yeah, I know this movie. <laughs> I know this movie pretty well, and I even remember playing with like neighborhood kids when I was growing up, and I would totally be supporting the like John McClane. Fatigues and wearing like a tank top and like black pants and going barefoot
1: <laughs> to be John McClane?
2: Uh Yeah, just to like <laughs> like if we were like going out and like playing guns or something like
1: that. Playing guns.
2: Yeah, real boy stuff, you know.
1: I hate that real playing guns. Playing guns. Yeah, I've never played guns in my life. Oh, I mean, I probably have. But <laughs> <laughs> I can never make the noises, you know.
2: Yeah. Can you try right now?
1: <laughs> you can do it. <laughs> <laughs> wow. You're really good at playing guns. Huh? I was.
2: Oh, that's a brag, but I was pretty good at playing. Guns. You
1: would never play guns now. You would never encourage our nibblings to play guns. No,
2: but I play guns at home by myself.
1: Do you? Do yeah. you play guns with the cat?
2: I do. I like hold like a banana and like
1: freeze. And <laughs> does he?
2: <laughs> Barely
1: doesn't listen. He's like, "That's not a gun. That's a banana." <laughs> Dad, you're crazy.
2: You have a kind of a very silly slash frustrating story about the lead up to you seeing this for the first time in the theater.
1: I feel like I've maybe told this story on the show before. Maybe but, tell uh, it. I'll tell it, tell it again. again. But yeah, I um, I had never seen this movie, and we had got the tickets fairly far ahead of time because we knew it was going to sell out and this was pre COVID. And one day you said like, so like, what do you know about Die Hard?" And I was like, I don't know. There's like a building and Bruce Willis is in it and a tank top. And you were like, what else do you know? And I said, that's it. And you got so excited because you were like, Oh, I figured it's, you know, it's such a pop culture reference point that you figured I would know way more about it and basically know the entire story. And I didn't, um, probably just cause I was uninterested in it. So when there were mentions of it, I just, didn't file it away in my memory. So the day of, or the day before it was one of those, um, a coworker sends an all staff email that spoils the end of the film. Yeah. And the email says it isn't Christmas until, and then has like a big reveal from the end of the film and a gif of it.
2: Yeah. You were so, I was so
1: close to like not knowing that before seeing the movie. And to this day, I'm so frustrated about that. And I'm just like, why send that in an all-staff email? Like, I get it, I get it, I get it. It's like the movie came out in the eighties, and we should all know by now. But there was just like no purpose to that email.
2: Well, just like the 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 universe at work that the day that we were going to see it, it got spoiled for you. That that's just unbelievable. It was a
1: real like, oh man. You were Moment. so close.
2: You were like literally hours away from having it unspoiled.
1: Yeah. So terrible. That's why uh we hear Bad Dad, Rad Dad are committed to being spoiler-free outside of our daddy deep dive episodes. Yeah. Um
2: <laughs> and outside of me getting a little overzealous.
1: Talk about Home Alone. Home Alone. But I mean, if you haven't seen Home Alone, that's wild. That's <laughs> just like <laughs> a
2: newer film than Die Hard.
1: <laughs> no, but if you haven't seen Home Alone and you don't plan to see Home Alone. Like, who are you?
2: <laughs> yeah, why are you sleeping on home It's alone?
1: so good. um so the thing the thing that was so interesting to me when I finally saw this for the first time is I think I had dismissed it as like an action movie, and it is an action movie, but it's more of a closed circuit circuit cat and mouse film mm-hmm. than it is a like shoot 'em up. I mean, there are shoot 'em ups and explosions, but so much more of it is the tension of will Hans Gruber and his people figure out who John McClane is and can he save everybody? Mm -hmm. And I love a closed circuit film. Like I love Panic Room and Cube and anything where people are stuck, like Clue. It doesn't even matter the genre. I just i am very compelled by being stuck in one space.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: I really, really like that.
2: Well, it just like puts such a it it puts a limit on your film and then it's like, okay, how do we kind of create something compelling out of this, the, out of the limitations?
1: And it makes it a pressure cooker, right? Like this is a film that it's, kind, it's, it's really fun to watch it a second time, knowing all of the pieces that they put in place to make the moments happen. Mm-hmm. And I friggin love it. And then like, so this was something that really warmed my heart this time around is just the staying power of art. And so when Alan Rickman comes on the screen for the first time, everyone cheered. Mm -hmm. He's like not a good guy in the movie, but we were cheering for Alan Rickman. We weren't cheering for Hans Gruber, right? Mm -hmm. And like Alan Rickman has been gone for a while. And just like the fact that he made this movie, this was his first feature film. He'd been doing theater, but this was his first feature. And there can be an audience of almost 500 people for a movie that was made in the 80s for an actor that's no longer alive that we all still cheer for. Mm -hmm. Like how freaking cool is that? Yeah. Like how amazing is that? And it just made my heart so happy. It also made me happy that we have this theater in Edmonton that plays these older films and that so many people come out to them Mm -hmm. and that we all get to experience that together and like share in our love of even if not the film, like an actor in the film. And I just think that's so cool. And Alan Rickman just seems like he was the very best.
2: Yeah. Well, and to that too, I mean, I said earlier, I was probably watching this when I was too young, but there were there were families bringing little kids to this.
3: Yeah, there were
1: like elementary age kids at this. And it was like a late show. It was 930 on December 23rd. <laughs> yeah. Like the movie ended at midnight. So it on ended and Christmas Eve started.
2: <laughs>
3: yeah, And
1: that was cool because this movie is set at Christmas Eve. So I thought that was really awesome.
2: Yeah, I loved it.
1: Okay, I have some things to tell you. Okay. I want to tell you the different titles of this movie in different countries.
2: Oh yeah, okay, okay. This is good. I love this. <laughs> so,
1: I'm going to start with your first question. What is the novel that this is based on called? It's called Nothing Lasts Forever. <sighs> I don't even know what die hard means. Yeah. Do you?
2: No. Like
1: Like Ben, he's going to die hard.
2: Or it's hard it's hard for him to die?
1: I don't know. I'm going to What does die hard mean?
2: Because when when somebody says you're a die hard fan of somebody.
1: Oh, that's what it means. So, it means strongly or fanatically determined or devoted.
2: Like he is a diehard. He's a
1: diehard, yeah. But they're like playing on it, I think. Yeah, yeah. Okay, okay. I never got that before. That's cool. Thank you. Um, but here are some of the titles in other countries. In Spanish, Crystal Jungle. In French, Crystal Trap. Okay. In Poland, The Glass Trap.
3: What the hell?
1: In Hungary, Give Your Life Expensive. <laughs> <laughs> and Die Hard 2 is called Your Life is Even More Expensive. And Die Hard Three is called Life is Always Expensive.
2: Oh man.
1: Woo. In Finland, it's called Only Over My Dead Body. <laughs> <laughs> in I,
2: I will only do that.
1: Oh. Over my dead body. And in Serbia, Croatia, and Bosnia, it's called Die Like a True Man. All right. Or Die Manly. <laughs> but So in,
2: like Die With a Beard.
1: But but. But but. Mm. If you get the pirated version of it in Serbia, Croatia, or Bosnia, it's called sell your skin at a high price.
2: Oh, God.
0: (laughs) What?
1: (laughs) And so I guess the reason is that that term diehard is not a term like that idiom. So an idiom for all you there, uh, English language arts fanatics, an idiom is a phrase that like we actually cannot determine the meaning from the words. Yeah. Like for diehard to mean like a fan of something doesn't make any sense from the words die hard. There's no way to like suss the meaning out from it. And so that idiom doesn't necessarily exist in every country. And so it's best translation is it is hard to kill him or he dies slowly. (laughs) And so then other folks in other countries have like tried to create titles that make sense there. I just love that. From crystal jungle to sell your skin at a high price. What a journey.
2: And what's the expensive trilogy?
1: Life is always expensive, so it's your life. Your give your life expensive. Your life is even more expensive, and life is always expensive.
2: Man, which that's is friggin' true, true yeah, <laughs> yeah.
1: I just have to say, I like I dismissed this film for so long, and it's so much more than like a dumb boy action film. Even though it can be that too, it's really fun, and mm. it's really thrilling, and it's really tense. And there's a reason the moments in it are, are iconic and i am a i've been turned into a fan of it and i'm happily happily one
2: yeah yeah I, this is another one another staple i think we watch this every year and uh, i think because metro usually yields such a good turnout for it that they'll show it every year and it's way more fun to go watch this in a theater full of diehard fans <laughs> <laughs> than uh than to just watch it at, at home alone <laughs> That's a twofer.
1: That is. Sounds good.
2: Um, But I think that, you know, something that makes this film so good is the character of John McClane. The fact that he's kind of an everyman. He's not an action hero. He's not like a Schwarzenegger or a Stallone. um, but, But he also kind of encompasses the audience throughout through his talking to himself and reacting to the things that are going on in a very earnest kind of taken aback, taken by surprise kind of way um I also lean over to you one of the moments because like he does a lot of like talking and cussing to himself which i really really like and it just makes him so endearing but i'm just like i think john mcclain might have adhd because i do all of this <laughs> <laughs> just like and he gets lost in his thoughts like he'll just kind of be like standing there and then stop and he's just thinking about something and i'm like john McLean has adhd <laughs>
1: <laughs> you heard it here folks
2: hot take john mcclain from Die Hard ADHD. Um. And then, yeah, like you said, he, he's perfectly complemented by Alan Rickman's Hans Gruber, who is so calculated and calm and cool and imposing and unpredictable. Um, yeah, anytime either of them are on screen, it's totally electric and draws you in. And make it, it it's what pushes it past just like a quote unquote, Pure action movie.
1: And I think it's also the secondary characters, right? Like Argyle, Al Powell, um, the guy who's working with the Germans to like break into the vault, mm-hmm. and Bonnie Bedelia, like Holly. But mm-hmm. even like
2: Thornburg, like the, like on the other side of things, like Thornburg, the reporter guy.
1: Or the douchey guy that Holly works with. Ellis. Yeah. Like yeah. all of these people just like, Breathe such life into the film, either because we like hate them and are like, okay, come on, or we really like them. Like Argyle is is relatable as that young person who's like, yeah, I'm doing my job, but also I'm gonna have a fun time. Yeah, like who of us didn't do that in our like sixteen to twenty year old retail jobs, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And then like Al Powell is just, I mean, the hero of the film, I think. Yeah, and it's just it's got such likable characters, which is what makes it transcend being an action film for me. As someone who struggles with action films, I don't struggle with this movie. I like it. And when it does get pew pew and bang bang explosion, it's fun because they use it sparingly.
2: Yeah, and there's usually some sort of higher stakes involved in whatever the outcome of an action sequence is.
1: So this reminds me of a movie I'd really like to watch again sometime soon because I haven't seen seen it in years and who knows if I'll still love it, but I've seen it many times. And the many times I've seen it in the past, I've loved it, which is Speed,
2: mm,
3: which
1: yeah. is probably classified as an action movie. It's but Die it's, Hard on a Bus. It is. And it's that tension of like, there's something so directly at stake Yeah, that I like about Die Hard and I like about Speed and I like about Panic Room and I like about films like that mm-hmm. that I don't like about James Bond. Yeah. Or other action movies, or or Mission Impossible, or whatever, right? They're just the stakes don't matter to me. I'm like, who cares? But here, I'm like, well, yeah, your wife is in a building with like people who are going to kill her. I care. Or like the bus is going to explode. I care. Yeah. Right. Like those are those are things that feel so tangibly important mm-hmm. as opposed to like I don't even remember what was going on in Mission Impossible. Money. Um. Identity. Yeah. Dumb. <laughs> who cares? Sorry to all of you who like Mission Impossible, but this is an action movie that this person who doesn't like action movies can get behind and that is so cool. Yeah. And then put it at Christmas, even better.
2: Yeah. And like I I don't I don't have much to weigh in on the whole like is Die Hard a Christmas movie thing? Who cares
1: if it's not a Christmas movie to you, then don't call it a Christmas movie and shut up. And if it is a Christmas movie, call it a Christmas movie, watch it at Christmas and shut up. It's a Christmas movie to me.
2: Yeah. You can you can watch it whenever. Honestly, but yeah, I mean, it just happens to be that always around Christmas that it's showing at the theater. So that's when we watch it.
1: Well, I think it comes down to the person who sent the friggin' all staff email would always get into this argument with another staff member. Neither of them work with me anymore about if it was a Christmas movie or not. And one of the people would say, a Christmas movie has to have like a Christmas message. And the other person said, well, a Christmas movie just has to be set at Christmas. So I'm like, yeah, it comes down to what your definition of a Christmas movie is. And we don't have some legally binding definition of what a Christmas movie is. Yeah. So yes, to some people, Die Hard or Black Christmas aren't Christmas movies. But for me, it just has to be set at Christmas.
2: Well, here is something to maybe sway any non-believers of this being a Christmas movie or not. This movie ends with the song Let It Snow being played. And the whole theater sang along to Let <laughs> yeah, It Snow.
1: We had a sing-along.
2: Which was super cute.
1: And then Christmas Eve started.
2: Yeah. We sang Let It Snow into Christmas Eve.
1: Which is so cute.
2: So don't tell me nothing about nothing.
1: <laughs> yeah. Don't tell me nothing about nothing.
2: Uh, how does Die Hard make you feel?
1: So tense. So excited. I honestly really like this movie.
2: Nice. Yeah. Just so happy. Uh, especially when watching it with an enthusiastic crowd.
1: Yeah. It's super fun. I highly recommend it it to anyone.
2: Yeah. Ooh, this next one is another good. We watched so many good movies this week.
1: (laughs) Because we watched all of our favorite Christmas movies. (laughs) Yeah. We watched A Christmas Story. (laughs) It's a 1983 comedy family film directed by none other than Black Christmas's Bob Clark. Hell yeah. Nine years later.
2: Homeboy made not one, but two iconic Christmas movies.
1: And two of our favorites. Yeah. So awesome. They could not be more different, but also share some elements where you're like, okay, I get it, Bob Clark. So it was directed by him, written by Lee Brown and Bob Clark, and it was based on a novel by Gene Shepard. It stars Peter Billingsley as Ralphie Parker, Linda Dillon as mother, Darren McGavin as the old man, and Gene Shepard, who wrote the novel that it's based on, does the narration for adult Ralph. Mm-hmm. Um, the synopsis in the 1940s, a young boy named Ralphie Parker attempts to convince his parents, teacher and Santa Claus that a red rider range, 200 shot BB gun really is the perfect Christmas gift. Perfect. <laughs> so that is whoever wrote that synopsis. I love you. Yeah. You got a full great marks synopsis tens across the board. What do you think of a Christmas story?
2: Okay. This is, I mean, I'm saying this about everything, but this is another staple Christmas movie for us. The reason it's so special for me, I think, is because I discovered it on my own. Like not even my mom has seen this movie. It was on TV around Christmas time. I was in elementary school-ish, and I watched it and it just it makes me so happy cuz I feel like it encompasses what I was talking about earlier with home alone of just this. It totally nails the childlike feelings around Christmas. Or for the wrong time of this film, it makes me feel that way too. Mm-hmm. Just like how everything in your world is <laughs> lesser than priority number one, which is I want my perfect Christmas present uh, like I, there's one thing I want, and I want to get it, and I'm gonna do whatever I can to get that Christmas present. And that is pure as hell, mm-hmm. and it comes across so well in this movie. And it just makes me so happy. And what makes me also really, really happy is that I got to show you this movie for the first time.
1: So here's something that I just thought of, which is so strange that I've never thought of this. I loved Black Christmas before we started hanging out. And I showed it to you and you love it now. Mm. You'd never seen it before. Mm -hmm. You loved A Christmas Story before we started hanging out. And I'd never seen it before and you showed it to me and now I love it. So we each showed each other a Bob Clark Christmas movie that we love.
2: That's so great. Isn't that so
1: cool? I love that. I literally never thought about that until this moment. Yeah. And that is just so awesome. And they're so different, but they each scratch a particular Christmas itch Yeah. for yeah. me. This film, when you showed it to me the, for the first time, just blew me away. Mm. I thought it was the funniest thing I've ever seen. Twice you've done this. You showed me Little Shop of Horrors, which I'd never seen. And I was like, how have I never seen this? And I love this so much. Mm-hmm. And I felt the same way about this. I'm just like, this is so funny. And that you're, you already said it, but just that when you're a kid and there's something you want for Christmas and you don't have the money or the means to go get it on your own, and you're just hoping against all hope that when you open your presents on Christmas Day, that it's going to be in there.
3: hmm
1: And it's all you want. And Christmas is just subsuming your thoughts. hmm like, what a great story. Yeah. And then on top of that, like, there's just so much else going on in this film. Like, it just feels like this family that, like, doesn't have it all together kind of reminds me, we have been um, catching up with Bob's Burgers episodes that we've missed, and we love Bob's Burgers. Mm-hmm. This family gives me kind of a, like, real-life Bob's Burgers vibe in terms of, like, everyone's a little dysfunctional and a little bit strange. Yeah. But at the end of the day, they all really love each other. Yeah. And they don't always express that perfectly, but like when it comes right down to it, there's a lot of love there. Yeah. And that's really relatable to me. Mm-hmm. And I just think that's so cool. I also love the vocabulary in this film. It's yeah. really impressive.
2: Yeah. Any specifics?
1: Um, oh, does he say Paragon at one point? I don't know. There's just some like absolutely iconically like difficult vocabulary words.
2: I think a one line at one point is the electric sex in the window.
1: (laughs) I do do like that a lot. But I think what works so well about it, and this is going to come up in a way that it doesn't work as well, I think in the next film we're going to chat about, is that you've got this super adorable kid in Peter Billingsley Playing this so purely, Mm -hmm. just, like, his imagination running wild, his, like, desire to get this gun is so all-encompassing, but then it's voiced over by an adult him, And so you've got this juxtaposition between that childhood purity and naivety and the adult reflecting back on this time with, like, love and nostalgia and, like, tenderness for himself, for, like, his young self, right? And that juxtaposition, when we hear adult Ralphie saying these ridiculous things In the moment, your brain just thinks that's little Ralphie's thoughts. Yeah. But it's not. And there's something so funny about, like, how our brains just, like, forget that it's voiceover. Mm -hmm. That it's, like, him as an adult reflecting back. And that, like, adult voice is just so wild. Oh, yeah. It's it's the soft glow of electric sex gleaming in the window. (laughs) (laughs) Or next to me in the blackness lay my old blue steel beauty. Like, there's just, like, it's just so... I don't know, A- amazing it's- writing.
2: Well, and it delivered so great by Gene Shepard. Like, it's all the things you said. The way that it, he encompasses both adult Ralphie, but also kid Ralphie in the moment, but so eloquently. <laughs>
1: <laughs> this another shot of mysterious, inexorable official justice. <laughs>
2: like <laughs> Yeah, it's so it's so great. It, and it ve- it like it veers so close to being over the top, but it still works so well.
1: Yeah, like it's just, this would be a great way to expand your vocabulary. <laughs> it's so, so, so fun. I wanted to ask you, because I think this, this movie is about a Christmas quest, right? The quest for the Red Rider. Mm-hmm. Do you ever have a Christmas quest that you remember?
2: <sighs> when I was a kid... There was a couple, there was a couple things. One was a little bit more dramatic than the other. One was that I really wanted a guitar at one point. And I like, I know, cause all my friends around, around fourth grade were starting to, not all my friends, but a few of my friends were starting to pick up instruments and they started taking lessons and I was getting jealous of that. And I was start I started to kind of broaden my musical horizons and starting to listen to m- some more punk bands and stuff like that. And I'm like, I want to play that kind of music. So I asked for a guitar and I got one for Christmas. And there's documentation out there of like a photo my dad snapped of me as soon as I started opening it and I saw that it was a guitar. I like turned just kind of unknowingly towards him and I just like pure joy on my face. <laughs> Another one was when I was like really little and I loved Batman growing up and I really wanted this bat, this like one bat cave toy. And it was so cool. Like there was, so many parts to it and it was layered and it was from batman forever which was like the new movie that just came out and i was like oh i really i really want this um then i opened up all my presents on christmas day and i didn't get it so i was like kind of bummed and then i got i got the little like
1: hey what's that over there did you really i did who did it your mom or your dad
2: it was my it was my i think you i think both of them like i think both of them were doing a little bit that's like yeah like what what is that what is that over there they got me the freaking bat cave and like ecstatic like that's it's, it's so so cool and uh yeah there's i feel like there's no better thing you could do for your kid on christmas than to like severely disappoint them and then bring them <laughs> way up
1: <laughs> okay what, but like what about you so i don't have a particular memory i feel like my parents always were a little bit more um, like our really good gifts usually came on our birthdays just because there's four of us. And I think buying mm. a lot of gifts for four kids when we weren't the wealthiest family um, at Christmas was tough. So often our like best gift was a joint gift. Like I remember the year we got a DVD player was like a pretty big deal. Mm. And it was like for the family or like we got um, an N64 one year for the family. What so it family. was for all of us. Um, and those gifts were usually pretty rad. And I think often they were things like my parents wanted to. Which like sometimes you and I do that to this day. Like we buy stuff, uh, both of us. Yeah, yeah. Um, I do remember. So me and my second oldest sister, we I think we like Christmas the best of like the four kids in the family, Mm. and my mom really loves Christmas. Um, but her and I, I like I my my most vivid memories are that her and I would always wake up like before everybody else, and in our first house that we lived in. My room was upstairs and her room – no, sorry, her room was upstairs and my room was downstairs. And so she would usually come down to me because in our first house we lived in, there was a TV on the main floor. Or like, it was like a sunken living room and that's where my bedroom was. Mm -hmm. So she would come down to me, come into my room, and then we would go and watch a movie together while we waited for everybody else to get up. Or we'd just like lay in my bed and like talk about how excited we were for Christmas. (laughs) Yeah. Um, It was before we had TVs in our room. But she would like sneak a peek at our stockings because my mom goes to like wild for stockings. Like the stockings have like legit gifts in them, um, and they would be like ex- like the stockings would be exploded exploding out, and then usually and she doesn't wrap the stocking stuff, mm-hmm. and then usually there'd be like another bag with stuff in it for our stockings. Um, and so Britt would like stocking it, overflow, stocking overflow. So Britt would take a look, and then she would like give me like a little bit of a heads up about things in the stocking. And then when we moved, when I was nine and she was she would have been twelve. Her room was in the basement and my room was upstairs and we just flipped. We're like, I would come down to her and we would watch a movie in the basement while we waited for everybody else to get up. And I would like give her the like low down on what I saw in the stockings. But there was also one year, I believe it was in our new house. So we would have been nine and 12 or older where we unwrapped some of our gifts and rewrapped them. Kylie. Yeah. We found out that we got the Matilda DVD or not DVD, VHS. <laughs> um, that was bad. And I'm sure it was obvious I think we had like a, we had a plan that if anybody noticed, we'd say the cat got into it. Mm. But (laughs) quite honestly, um, a recent one, not to like pump your tires, but was you getting me an iPad last year. Mm. I've wanted one forever and I'm like, I can't justify that expense. And honestly, you couldn't either, but it was a very (laughs) nice gift.
2: But it was pre-variable mortgage. (laughs) It was
1: pre-variable mortgage. So we were, we were laughing. Um, I don't know. Yeah. The Christmas quest is pretty special. Yeah, and now it's fun to kind of be able to do that for like our nibblings, mm-hmm. you know, like try and it's going to be cooler the older they get that like maybe we can get them the thing that nobody else got them, mm-hmm. and that's pretty, that's pretty fun.
2: Yeah, it is cool. Yeah, I think like I feel like we both try to kind of recapture a little bit of that Christmas magic we felt when we were kids when we're buying stuff for each other because I think much like you were describing, you growing up. Birthdays are kind of the bigger thing for us in our relationship. Like that's when you and I kind of go more ham on each other, buying each other gifts mm-hmm. than, than at Christmas.
1: We but. only started really, when we very first started dating, we did Christmas gifts and I thought our first ever Christmas gifts to each other were pretty freaking thoughtful. Yeah. Like you got me like a whole like tea set that I still have to this day. I love tea. I got you those special custom made t-shirts.
2: Yeah, that was really cool. I'll never forget that.
1: But here's, so just for all of you listening, Elliot's trash at showing when he is happy about something. Aquarius. And then I get like self-conscious about it. It, Not anymore. It's been 13 years. So I know that like, I just need to trust what you say. But like the, I like was so excited to give you those shirts that I'd made you. And just
2: stare at them blank faced. (laughs) Yeah.
1: And I was just like, oh, like, was this like too much? Because it was like, it was this song that we listened to a lot uh, called When We First Met. And the cover of the single was like uh, two people from the neck to the waist. And one of them was wearing t-shirts, a t-shirt that said when we first met. And the other one was wearing a t-shirt that said hello, goodbye. So I made us those shirts. So good. And then I, but when you didn't really react, I was like, oh, was this like too much? Is this like too romantic, like too intense? And then I felt self-conscious.
2: No. No classic me
1: (laughs) (laughs) and classic me anxiety uh you know yeah adhd yeah
2: yeah. just internalize everything good (laughs) or bad
1: but back to your christmas story it's so good it's It's so so funny
2: that's the thing it's so funny it makes me belly laugh
1: and it's exactly my kind of humor
2: yeah it's it's so good it's dry some of it's over the top and but in a good way, in the best way, in the best possible way.
1: You so somebody bought the house. You know this? Maybe somebody bought the house in the two thousands. I think um, for only one hundred and fifty thousand dollars. But it was like like most locations. It wasn't the interior. It was just the exterior was what they shot, right? But then the person like outfitted the inside to match but it looks like in the movie and it's now a museum. Like you can go in and, oh, and then, cool. and then they bought a house across the street and it's a gift shop.
2: So in the next movie, we talk about spoiler alert, the sequel to this movie. Do they use that house? I don't know. Or do they have something new? I don't know. Interesting. Okay. I um, do
1: have to mention quickly before we wrap up that like the ending is pretty racist and that sucks.
2: Every time we get there, like, this movie is so close to perfection. It hurts me whenever we get to this one moment near the end that just goes for a racist joke. And it it's brutal.
1: And it sucks seeing it in the theater and some people are laughing. From like, most of the time when we see something older in the theater and there's, like, a racist or, like, sexist or, like, otherwise moment that probably wouldn't make it to a movie today. Mm-hmm or at least not a successful movie, like usually there's kind of a like, oh, in the audience. Like some people were laughing at this and I was like, oh, really?
2: The majority of people are not. That's true. Which like speaks to, you know, maybe there's some hope for humanity. (laughs) Yeah. Huge bummer. There was something really interesting though, when we were kind of talking about this way later after the fact, like I, I feel like the older we get, the more we like, for me at least, I can kind of start relating to the parents in in this, like Ralphie's mom and dad. And like, there's this moment in the movie that's one of my favorites. And it stood out for me on this particular viewing, a moment between Ralphie and his mom that is just real special and just hit me right in the heart. And I, I think is really, it's, it's really lovely. But also like you had a really good thought about the dad and the way he chooses to express himself through the holidays. Cause he's kind of, he's kind of set up as a bit of a curmudgeon throughout mm-hmm. the whole film. And like you said, this is set during the forties. So, you know, the idea of what it means to be the man of the house and what masculinity means and what kind of parent you are and what kind of man you are is like, is all kinds of not great, but he love He clearly loves Christmas so much. That it's just like this one time of the year that he's actually able to kind of let his hair down a little bit and to be joyous and to show love for the members of his family in a different way than he can any other time during the year. Mm -hmm. I thought that was such an interesting thought and insight that you had about that because I never thought about that before. And I think that I'm gonna view, I'm gonna view that
1: differently, differently every time we watch this.
2: Yeah, yeah.
1: Cool. I guess I'm smart.
2: Very small. What are you doing?
1: I'm looking at the fact that you can spend a night at this house.
2: Oh, you're booking, you're booking us? No,
1: in? we'd have to go to Ohio. <laughs> but you can spend up to three nights. <coughs> they also have the Bumpus house next door. You can stay there if you want. But it does say, sorry, no hound dogs. There are no hound dogs on the property and you cannot bring your own. They have a bad reputation of stealing Christmas turkeys. The only animals permitted in either house are service animals. <laughs> <laughs> Bumpuses. Anyway. Yeah. This is such a good movie. Thank you for showing it to me. Yeah. Of course. How does it make you feel?
2: Uh, it just makes me feel the same Christmas spirit that I felt when I was a kid. Um, even if it only lasts for the runtime of this movie, it makes me feel that exact feeling I love to feel. And it just wraps me up in so so much nostalgia. Like, Does it, does it make you feel that way too? Yeah, like, I
1: have written down here. It makes me feel Christmas magic, well, which is so interesting because I didn't see it when I was a kid, but it captures something beyond what Home Alone does because Home Alone is, it is Christmas magic, but it's like a fantastical Christmas magic. Right. Whereas this is a relatable Christmas magic. It's like this.
3: Yeah.
1: And and as I get older, there's different characters to relate to, like, you know, starting to understand the parents, even though we don't have children, but like we do have children in our lives who we spend Christmas with. Mm -hmm. I don't know. And just like how you... The magic gets transferred from, you know, you having people create that Christmas magic for you, or, you know, at least we were in in families where we were really lucky that our parents endeavored to create that Christmas magic for us. Mm -hmm. Um, And now we get to try and be a part of that for the kiddos. Yeah. I don't know. It's really special.
2: Yeah. I agree. We kind of talk about it in our gremlins deep dive, just of how there's just some films that have the power that even if you see them late in life, they can make you still have that feeling of nostalgia or that, that feeling of being a little kid again. Um, I think that's, that speaks to the power of a film for sure. Okay. So like I, like I said, we wanted to follow this up with the very, very new sequel to Christmas story. We watched A Christmas Story Christmas. Uh it came out in 2022. It's a comedy family comedy family holiday film. It was directed by Clay Cadis and written by um well it's based on the book In God We Trust All Others Pay Cash by Gene Shepard. Um and then the screen story was written by Nick Schneck B- Peter Billingsley Nick Schneck
1: <laughs> She put that twice. <laughs> oh, he wrote
2: the screen story and the screenplay. And Clay, Clay, <laughs> <laughs> Clay Katus also wrote the At, screenplay. It's
1: just in a loop. He's just saying things over and over.
2: <laughs> Nick Schneck. Um, and it stars Peter Billingsley, returning as Ralphie Parker. Aaron Hayes as Sandy Parker. River Drosch as Mark. Juliana Lane as Julie. Julie Haggerty as Mrs. Parker. And Scott, Scott Schwartz returning as Flick. And Artie Robb returning as Schwartz. Synopsis is, follows the now-adult Ralphie as he returns to the house on Cleveland Street to give his kids a magical Christmas like the one he had as a child, reconnecting with childhood friends and reconciling the passing of his old man. Uh, this trailer popped up a few months ago, and I got really excited. I like, I jumped out of my seat with excitement when I saw that this was coming out, mostly because there were so many people returning from the original, which I thought was super cool, and I couldn't wait to show you the trailer and then... I think we were both kind of getting a little hyped up for this. So what do you think of A Christmas Story Christmas?
1: It's complicated.
2: Yeah. This is for so many reasons. One being this is like also the end of our Christmas movie journey for the week. Like this is what we buttoned our Christmas season movies with.
1: I think it's like legacy movies are complicated for me or like legacy TV shows. Mm -hmm. There's something so inherently appealing about them, Mm -hmm. right? Like to revisit these characters we want to, right? Like most of us, when when we loved a character, we want to revisit it. Yeah. But there's also something, I don't know that I've seen a legacy, anything that has been satisfying the way I want it to. There's something that's always just like a little bit inherently disappointing or hollow about it.
2: Yeah, like the, mag- the any sort of magic that existed within the original thing, gets kind of lost and maybe that's a generational thing because i mean i'm thinking of like girl meets world or even even the trailer that we just watched for that 90s show i mean the main people that are probably the main focus of the show don't seem that interesting but knowing that like topher and uh and donna and (laughs) Topher and Donna. (laughs)
1: Topher and Laura.
2: (laughs) Yeah, and Ashton and Mila, like they all show up. And even like Red and Kitty, like that all seems really great, but I just want them on screen. I don't want to spend time with these newbies.
1: Yeah, I think it's the complicated thing of like who is a legacy project for? And it sounds like the legacy projects. Is that (laughs) what it is in Don't Worry Darling? I feel like they're called something like that. I don't know, maybe. (laughs) (laughs) Um, but. You know, I feel like it's it's trying to appeal to both the new and old generation. Like, like for Girl Meets World, it was so much more about this is for the kids of people who watched Boy Meets World than it was this is for the people who watched Boy Meets World. Yeah. Um. Now, interestingly, I think this one was meant to more be for like an older audience because it didn't focus on the kids. It focused on Ralphie. Yeah. Um. And I almost would have been interested in seeing it focused on his kids and like what they how they understand him as a parent i totally understand why they didn't go in that direction mm-hmm. particularly with like the focus on like the passing of his dad and and that being done because the original actor is no longer around right um but there's just you know there's a certain hollowness to like the specific like wink wink this is from the first film mm-hmm. like wink wink we're homaging this um and and like i said with a christmas story that like super engaging and hilarious juxtaposition between the maturity of adult ralphie's voice and i did find my favorite quote are you ready for it yeah. from a christmas story christmas had come officially we plunged into the cornucopia quivering with desire and the ecstasy of unbridled avarice
2: yeah so good
1: <laughs> you kidding cornucopia quivering ecstasy unbridled avarice it's amazing. No kid is saying that. <laughs> um, but when you take adult voiceover and just put it over adult Ralphie, and so it's just his interior thoughts, mm-hmm. just isn't the same. Yeah, it's just any movie. Yeah. So there was a certain magic, like the magic we just talked about, missing.
2: Yeah, and there's just there was also a bit of just a like I I was totally here for Ralphie as a character in in this. Like I I quite liked him, but there there was this, you use the word hollow, like there was a hollowness to kind of the other characters around them. Like this just seemed like a very this is going to sound kind of rude, but almost kind of like a Hallmark Christmas movie a little bit, you yeah. know? Like it wasn't trying to, it wasn't trying to capture the same kind of magic.
1: Or do something new. It was just like, here's another version of that same film. But to an extent. Um, yeah. I think I really missed the original mother. Yeah, I and, think
2: it would have hit a lot differently.
1: Yeah, because there was a certain, you know, and and this is just the result of time. I, I What I've read is that they offered her the role, but she retired in 2007, and she chose not to come out of retirement to make this film. She's so silly. Yeah. In the first film, while still being like a really damn good mother. Yeah. Um, And this this mom's kind of mean. And like passive aggressive and
2: it's kind of like kooky and weird. Yeah, not like, not
1: silly, but kooky. Yeah. And I didn't like her. Yeah. And that's a hard sell, right? Anytime, anytime you replace a character, like replace an actor with another actor, it's a hard sell. Mm-hmm. Even when it's done out of necessity, like when Richard Harris died in in Harry Potter, they had to replace him. Um it's it's a tough sell when people loved the original character and I'm sorry, Julie Haggerty didn't convince me. Yeah, but it was really fun to like see all of the people, see yeah. the house again.
2: Yeah, this is like it, and there. Yeah, you're right. Like, there's some good bits in here, and I think like the biggest thing. I mean, the dead dad smorgasbord.
1: Yeah, and and it got me. The dead dad stuff got me. They did it well. Because, they did it really well because we like we care about the old man. Hmm. So you've got that part of it and then, you know, anybody's own feelings about father or father figures or parental figures in their lives. Or if you're me and you have a real dead dad, like then just the meshing of those two is going to get you. And it did. It succeeded.
2: Yeah, I, I felt like it had a really potent, it had really po- potent emotional stuff about family and loss and tradition and I felt like all of that was just conveyed and portrayed beautifully by Peter Billingsley.
1: He did a really good job. And he did a good job in the acting. I wasn't as sold on the overall writing of the piece, which he was a part of.
2: Yeah. But it still has like gorgeous blue eyes.
1: Yeah. You were like piercing blue eyes.
2: Well, and then when like they start getting teary, it's like, Ooh. damn, you're gonna make me cry at those oceans.
1: Interestingly, I thought he did He did have one of the most successful things he did was he did the voiceover in this because Gene Shepherd is no longer alive. Mm -hmm. He did a really good job of making his voice sound like Gene Shepherd.
2: Yeah. Like sounding like the original voiceover. Yeah. And like I said in Christmas Story, like Gene Shepherd's voiceover, his narration is just pitch perfect. It's It's some of the best
1: voiceover I've ever heard.
2: There's so much personality in, in it. And like again, yeah, encompassing adult and childhood thoughts. I feel like the same kind of thing exists. Like there's a purity to the narration by Peter Billingsley because you know, you're still trying to encompass that about Ralphie and we still know Ralphie as the little kid from a Christmas story, but he's also now this grown person that has his own life and his own troubles and things that he's dealing with. And yeah, I felt like he, he found a good balance and I think for where the film ends up going, it's like a, it's like a really good kind of, Hand in hand exchange of 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 the voiceover that's happening.
1: Yeah, I mean I, I think that this movie I'm I'm glad I saw it and I think it did what it wanted to do. Yeah. And that was it.
2: Yeah. I think I'll take the bits that I really liked with me mm-hmm. and probably take that with me into subsequent subsequent watchings of A Christmas Story. Yeah. Yep. I don't think I'll ever watch this again. Yeah. But I think it's cool that they did this. Mm-hmm. And got so many of the original folks to come back because that was just a bit of a trip.
1: It was a joy to see them all back together. Yeah.
2: Yeah. But it was a a day trip. Yep. And not a yearly trip. <laughs> <laughs> not a tradition. No. Um, yeah. How'd it make you feel?
1: You kind of just said it, but it I was it made me interested in revisiting these characters and glad to do so, but I'm not interested in visiting them again. Yeah outside of the original christmas story.
2: Yeah. Same. Yeah, I mean like while this did make me feel happy in some respects and emotional in some um yeah, I just I, I feel like I got everything I needed from it and I do I don't need to revisit it to get more of it. I yeah. got I got everything I needed from it. Yep. Thank you.
1: Bad dads and rad dads?
2: Okay, Christmas bad dads and rad dads.
1: They were they the choices were Plentiful. There was a cornucopia of choices. <laughs> yes.
2: Indeed. Okay. So I'm curious. Who's your bad dad?
1: So my bad dad, I only picked one. Yeah. No, I know. But like, I was certain about this. Yes. Here, Delia's Peter from Black Christmas.
2: Uh, yeah. That's a, that was, that was my runner up. But I get, I get your choice. Hmm. Mine was also named Peter, but his last name was McAllister. <laughs>
1: No way is he worse than Peter from Black Christmas. Give me
2: your points on Peter from Black Christmas.
1: Okay. Uh, he's outdated, first of all. <laughs> <laughs> like, his viewpoint on the world is not cool. Um, and his attempts to control other people so that he can feel good about himself, really dangerous. Um, the way he expresses his frustration, his emotion, and his anger is super upsetting. Um, Might we remember a scene with a piano? Not great. He doesn't listen. Like, when somebody's trying to have a genuine conversation with him, he doesn't listen, and all he's focused on are his own thoughts. And he just, like, the the ringer, it always comes back to it. He's selfish. Like, it's about his feelings, his emotions, his, the way other people will perceive him, and it's not at all about anybody else or, like, working together. Mm Mm-hmm. And I do not want somebody like that as my dad.
2: Yeah. Yeah, no, he's a piece of crap for sure. So Peter McAllister, Kevin's dad from Home Alone. I mean, he's totally, I feel like he's totally checked out. Like he, and he's clueless. He's, He's clueless and confused about what's going on, about what's actually happening, which then in turn forces Kate to have to take on more labor, labor, emotional and otherwise in solving the problem that they have, which is that Kevin is home alone. I also feel like he's just a, he's a bit of a numbskull and doesn't choose to learn any more about that or like come out, come out ahead. Cause I mean, if you, in case you didn't know, there's a sequel to this movie. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I feel like there's, there's no, there's nothing really learned by him through this experience. And, I I just think that as a partner and as a father, pretty useless.
1: So I think he's not a great dad. He's not the best dad, but I don't think he's the bad dad.
2: No. I like that. I we think ha-
1: Frank is worse.
2: Uncle Frank. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, well, in the, uh, yeah. I think in the battle, I'm glad we had a bit of a battle of the Peters. I think that's funny. But uh, the... Uh, <laughs>
1: <laughs> you said that so deadpan. I think that's funny.
2: Uh, but yeah, Black Christmas Peter.
1: You didn't fight that hard.
2: No, I, I Black Christmas Peter is despicable.
1: Yeah, he's a really not somebody you want to be raising children. I think
2: I mostly picked Home Alone Peter because I just needed to express how much I hate Kevin's dad.
1: <laughs> but you didn't think he'd win.
2: Yeah, so I've spoken my piece. So,
1: and I hear you. I do, but. Peter from Black Christmas. Frick off. Kick rocks.
2: Yeah, take your crap and go to space in two thousand one.
1: That's the best movie though. <laughs> <laughs> okay, who's your ad dad?
2: I feel like we probably got the same one.
1: I don't know. I typed I typed something out and I typed out an argument and then I backspaced it all and put something else. So I don't know.
2: Well, let's do first name last name.
1: Okay. Uh oh. No, we can. Okay. Okay.
2: Three, two one al, al powell. powell okay
1: <laughs> we did of, it we got to say one yeah, okay of course i was gonna say kevin's mom
2: uh i have her typed out here too yeah but, <laughs> but. and
1: she's great i'm so sorry katherine o'hara but al powell beats you
2: yeah just um yeah al powell from Die Hard. he's just supportive he's trusting he stands up uh for what is right he doesn't he doesn't have to be the loudest voice in the room and gives other people mm-hmm. chances to speak or, and, and he sets those boundaries of when he needs something or mm-hmm. and when he needs to figure something out, he's like, he puts up those boundaries and I feel like he's just the truest definition of a support system.
1: Yeah. Well, you said that really nice. <laughs> Thank you. Um, yeah. I have that. He's, he's a cheerleader. Like he's a cheerleader for John McClane throughout mm. the movie. He's reliable. Like, he's the person that John can count on. And he doesn't push him. Like, he also respects other people's boundaries. So when John doesn't want to reveal his name, there's no part of him that's like, okay, well, then I don't trust you, or you need to tell me, or whatever. He's just like, okay, there must be a reason for this. Mm -hmm. And I'm going to respect that. What can I call you? Right? And when he says Roy, he's like, okay, I'm going to call you Roy then. But meanwhile, douchey um, chief deputy guy is just like, driver's not talking much his name, but you know, like <laughs> yeah, so he's he's trusting, he respects other people's boundaries, he's reliable, he's empathetic, mm-hmm. like he he listens for what's not being said to consider what that person needs or to try and understand their situation mm-hmm. and then will stand up for that and try and help other people understand that person based on what he has understood. I said understand a lot there. Um, and he's really honest. Yeah. Like when he needs to be, he's like, he, we've talked about in the past based on that, um, the the grief counselor or the grief, um, the guy who speaks about grief who was, who was on the Sick Boy Live show and he's mm. talked about like age appropriate truths. I feel like Al Powell is good at context appropriate truths. Yes. <laughs> like, yeah, yeah. like what you need to hear for this particular moment. And like sometimes, yes, there may be a more specific truth, but like, now is not the time for it, right? Or not the way to say it. Mm-hmm. He is awesome. I love him. I understand why everybody cheers when yeah. he comes on screen the first time. Yeah, yeah,
2: love him. So, Al Powell, Be our your dad. dad, and special shout out to Kate McAllister. You
1: worked really hard to get back home.
2: Yeah, thanks. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay. Thank you for spending this holiday episode with us. So before we get out of here, we're going to hit you with a little rad wreck. We crushed, absolutely crushed the Showtime show Yellow Jackets. I know we're a little bit late to the party on this. What do you think of it, babe?
1: I have not been compelled to like binge a show in a long time. And Yellow Jackets did that for me. Although like it's pretty gnarly. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: It's pretty heavy. So like sometimes I needed to just watch like one episode a night. Yeah. But I really liked it.
2: It was it was pretty killer.
1: And so many of the adult actors, like Christina Ricci, Ju- Juliet Lewis, um, Melanie Linsky are people I really, really like. Yeah. And um I really like the the young Thaisa. I, I don't remember her, her name. I should look that up. Um from the she, Leftovers. She's from the Leftovers. And she's just like so, so, so great in that. Um and then the older Taissa, who's played by Tony Cypress, she was in Heroes, mm. which I really
2: like the first season. Yeah, I really, <laughs>
1: really liked the first season of that when I was a kid. Um, and it's Jasmine Savoy Brown, please, young Taissa. Just everybody rocks it. It's so good. It is pretty intense.
2: It is intense. But if that's your jam, definitely check it out. Like if you're, if you know Showtime's jam, I mean like they've made Dexter. They did Californication. They did Weeds. Like it's typically a show about some pretty complicated people, um, usually kind of shown through like some <laughs> bit of a negative lens, but a compelling negative lens. Then this show would probably be your jam. Think and it's it's uh yeah it's great. It's on it's on Crave if you're in Canada, HBO Max or not even HBO Max, Showtime. Wherever you stream, look for it. You have the internet, Google it. <laughs> then watch Yellow Jackets. That's our rad rec of the week. But thank you again. We hope you all had a really great holiday season. Or, you know, and if you don't celebrate anything holiday-wise, hope you had a good week. And thank you for joining us to talk about our favorite Christmas movies. We drop a new episode every Thursday. Until then, we encourage you to slide into our DMs or follow us on Instagram at baddad.raddad. Get a sneak week, sneak week, a sneak peek at what we've been, what we've been watching on our individual letterboxd accounts. Our usernames are in the show notes, and we would absolutely love you forever if you drop us a rating, review, or follow on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening from. But well, that is going to do it for these two Christmas stinkies this week. So until next time,
1: I'm Kylie and my dad's dead.
2: I'm Elliot and my dad's a deadbeat.
1: But remember,
2: not all dads have to be bad.